Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and I'm here today with my co-host, Dr. Bruno Fernandez. Bruno, welcome. Thank you, Sean. Pleasure to be here again. There you go. Um, this is an exciting episode for us today because today we are sitting with Dr. Cynthia Kian. Cynthia, well, you know what? I'm going to ask Cynthia to introduce herself. So first of all, Cynthia, thanks for joining us today. Great. Thanks, Sean. And uh, it's great to be here with both you and, and Bruno. It's, uh, as we were saying, you know, it's been a long time uh, since we got to catch up. And this is a great opportunity to discuss some really pertinent topics with the two of you. Great. So, you, you know, as you mentioned, it's been a long time since we caught up. It's probably been, probably been a decade or so. And a lot has happened in that decade. Um, uh, we've, all, we've all grown up. <laughs> but uh, I, maybe you can just start by giving the audience a little, a brief background of who you are. Sure. So, um, so my name is Cynthia Kian. I'm a Montreal hometown girl uh, with a broad um, international background in my medical training. Uh, so briefly, I was at medical school at McGill University, where I had the pleasure of getting to work and getting to know both of you at the time when um, I was doing some research in ophthalmology. Uh, then this was followed by a residency training at the University of Montreal. Uh, and then I went on for a fellowship in the United States, uh, where I did subspecialty training within the, the specialty of ophthalmology. So I trained in surgical retina, meaning I take care of um, both adult and children's pathologies or problems of the retina. Uh, this one I, I did at uh, Mass Eye and Ear Infirmary of uh, Harvard Medical School. And then following that, I also did additional fellowship training in inherited retinal diseases at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. All right, Cynthia, that is indeed very impressive. Uh, but uh, as every other remarkable person, right, you, you, you're certainly humble as well. And you forgot to mention that uh, in 2017, you were chosen as the young physician leader to represent Canada at the World Health Summit in 2017. In 2018, you, you voted the Young Professional of the Year by the, the Young Chamber of Commerce in Montreal. And in 2019, if all that wasn't enough, you were, you were elected one of the Canada's uh, top 40 under 40. So super impressive resume. We're very honored to have you here. And uh, you're certainly qualified like, to talk about the topic, which is uh, retinitis pigmentosa. So if you had to explain like, to, to a lay person what exactly is uh, a retinitis pigmentosa, how that affect the eye and, and what kind of symptoms like, someone affected would uh, present? Yeah, so retinitis pigmentosa, as you said, is, is a very broad term. I think a lot of people are familiar with the, the term, but they don't necessarily know exactly what it means or what it stands for. And I have the pleasure and I have the privilege of actually seeing many of these patients uh, in my clinic, in my day-to-day -day practice, where I see patients with uh, both uh, pediatric and adult retinal diseases, many of which are um, inherited or um, family-born. So retinitis pigmentosa is actually a general term that groups many different uh, rare genetic disorders. Uh, so it could be uh, coming from different uh, uh, gene mutations and ultimately they all lead to the loss of function and the breakdown of specific cells within the retina, which is the uh, light sensing uh, organ or the sheet of uh, cells at the back of the eye that are able to transmit light as uh, visual signals all the way to the back of the, uh, the brain to the uh, cerebral cortex. So basically you, there's a loss of function of those 
specific cells, which leads gradually to the loss of uh, being able to see clear images and ultimately uh, in some very severe cases, uh, all light uh, completely as well. So, and, you know, I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna add a, a story here. Actually, you know, Sean, I think, you know, it was actually really interesting because you know, back when I was a medical student, when we were working uh, in the Uncular Pathology Lab, I think you were one of the first people that spoke about having retinitis pigmentosa. And um, that really, you know, made an impression on me back then, because obviously in day-to-day -day interactions in our work, that's not something that was discussed. And it was interesting because one day, you know, while we were working on something, you, you, it just was in the context and you mentioned that you had retinitis pigmentosa. And you know, the, I, I was really surprised because at the time I didn't know. And it's not something, you know, knowing you initially from the work perspective was something that I had really, you know, thought about. And it was, it was just, you know, a surprise to me when you first talked about it because it was, you know, it was very, uh, it was very natural. And it, it's not something that I noticed in, you know, our day-to-day -day inter interactions or in the work that we did initially. So, so I think that was, you know, that was something that I definitely remember from our early interactions and talking about retinitis pigmentosa. So definitely that, that left a mark on me. That's a, that's amazing. Then, uh, you know, I mean, and back in those days, uh, obviously I could see a little bit better than I do do now. We're talking, uh, what, 10 or 15 years ago, it's been, mm -hmm. been quite a while, but, um, you know, I was, I think I've always tried to orient my work around my strengths as much as possible. So, uh, you didn't go out. Uh, you didn't go out with Bruno and I going out for beers too much after after work. You were working. <laughs> you were working. Out. Then, if you would have been into those low lighting, low lit environments, and uh, when I was walking in the wrong directions everywhere and stuff, you might have noticed a little bit more than uh, than in the, in the daylight or the the uh, the incandescent lights of the laboratory. Yeah. So, but uh, <laughs> no, 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 that's interesting. That's interesting. So, can you talk a little bit about? what the current state of affairs are for uh, treatments for retinitis pigmentosa and then maybe uh, at the same time what uh, you would see in the pipeline specifically for gene therapy for this disease. Definitely. So I think the, you know, usually we, we like to represent things graphically where, you know, you have retinitis pigmentosa in its, uh, in the, in the lifespan of a person where it evolves from minor um, visual signs and symptoms to the more severe forms. And at each different stage, there are levels at which different types of treatment modalities are suggested. So for example, um, you know, the, um, the gene therapy, which is really what's exciting, new and up and coming, covers a good majority of the time span from early disease up until um, moderate to, you know, pre-severe diseases, because basically the idea is that you still have enough cells left um, that are functioning that will benefit from the effect of potentially uh, salvaged or uh, reverse some of the loss from the disease itself by the gene therapy. Once you get to the more advanced levels, um, you're looking at treatments such as uh, retinal implants, retinoprosthesis, or what has been popularly known as the bionic eye, where you know, you're not necessarily dividing or categorizing the different types of retinitis pigmentosa so clearly because at the end of it, all the different types of these diseases lead to similar looking end-stage disease. And you're basically just trying to provide uh, the person with um, better uh, light and motion to uh, alleviate or make movement and 
avoiding obstacles easier. And then in, the, in between these sort of early stage and late stage treatments, you also have other new modalities, which are less, um, dis, you need to less um, differentiate between the different mutations. For example, uh, we're talking about uh, stem cell therapy. And then there's also this new field of optogenetics where you're trying to bypass the um, sick or non-functional photoreceptors and trying to stimulate the next layer of um, cells in the retina which are the ganglion cells, which will then transmit the message all the way back to the brain. So there's really these, you, would, you could say for now, like three or four different stages of different treatments, but it's really gene therapy that has taken up in recent years. And that's really, there's a hustle and bustle of a lot of excitement, a lot of promise, and there have been actual treatment results through that approach. I was just gonna follow that up with a, just to kind of put it in perspective for people listening, um, when you're looking at the progression of the disease. So what you're saying is in those early stages, gene therapy is really the, the go-to, well, I say go-to treatment of choice or, or what we're trying to uh, establish as a go-to treatment of choice, despite the fact that it, it can be complicated given that there's a lot of different underlying uh, mutations that could, could lead to the disease, right? But this is more the stage that we're at when trying to use gene therapy as the treat. And then as it progresses, you're losing some of the the actual cells, right? That gene therapy would be used to uh, to treat um, some of these photoreceptor cells, and that's where you're saying stem cells or optogenetics comes in. And then okay. once you're, and then kind of the late stage disease, you're looking at some because you don't even have maybe the architecture there anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Like even for stem cells, you'd need to have some architecture, I guess, for the cells to grab onto, right? Yeah, definitely. Exactly. And I think that's what is important for, you know, for I think your listeners and for people out there who um, are diagnosed with inherited retin diseases to know that it's important to, first of all, to, um, you know, the earlier the diagnosis, once symptoms start, the better, because then it gives us more time uh, and more options to work with. You know, I think um, time is retina. So as time goes by, the natural procession of the disease is that there's going to be gradually more and more cell loss. So, you know, the earlier we know uh, what the disease is, the earlier we know what the genetic mutation is, we have much more options open to us in which way to to best, you know, tackle the issue and um, preserve more vision and more functional um, uh, visual abilities. All right. Uh, so, if it, so you think about gene therapy, right, which is, which is, uh, as I understand, like the, the, the treatment of choice uh, kind of for patients that are early in the course of retinitis pigmentosa, uh, there must be like a ton of questions uh, uh, on their part on what exactly does it entail to be uh, enrolled in a cl- clinical trial. So mm-hmm. what, are, what are the usual questions like, that they have uh, for you? Like, I mean, the risks, like, I mean, how likely they are to get their vision back, you know, so. Yeah. For sure. So I think, you know, the first part that's really important for me, I think, is to, you know, to to clarify what this treatment uh, is for for many people who have visual problems. You know, I think, uh, for example, when the first officially approved gene therapy for for eye disease was approved just last October, um, a lot of people with vision loss were very excited by this news. But, you know, in 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 general media, it's, it's not 
you know, very clear that we're specifically targeting inherited retinal diseases. You know, so a lot of people were full of hope, people who've had, for example, uh, ac um, horrendous accidents, you know, had retinal detachments uh, many, many years ago. Um, you know, they, they come back 40 years later and are hopeful that this is a treatment for them, you know, because gene therapy, stem cells, these are, are terms we hear very, very often, right? But we have to kind of give the patient a very clear image of what, the, first of all, the, the basic um, inclusion criteria, for example, to become eligible for it is. So we have to make clear that it has to be people with um, genetic mutations leading to retinal disease. It, unfortunately for now, um, is not for people who have had uh, physical you know, retinal damage, either from trauma or from previous, um, you know, incidents that have led to surgery. Because as you can imagine, the eye has to be um, fully intact physically to be able to accept um, the insertion of this gene therapy. So an eye that has undergone a lot of um, change or scar tissue will not be able to, to tolerate, you know, will reject this treatment. So it's really for people whose eyes, you know, architecturally uh, from the outside, everything is intact. The retina is in place, but it's really at the cellular level that the cells are not functioning fully or they're losing their function over time due to uh, mutations in the gene coding that was really, you know, a, a genetic signature that has been pre-programmed since birth. You know, either this visual loss can come on later in life, during childhood, or even later in adult life, but they have to have uh, at least those two basic um, key factors. So uh, physically, the eye has to be healthy um, and can tolerate a surgical pr procedure. And secondly, they need to have a confirmed test showing that they have the genetic mutation in question that has been uh, shown to be able to be treated through gene therapy. Uh, just to, let me just follow up on that. So, for for a patient that go through all that and they do the genetic testing and 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 they show like the mutation that can be treated, uh, so so it's a treatment that is approved already, right? So it, it's not a clinical trial anymore. It's like exactly. a standard treatment, like no other. All right. Exactly. I think that's like you were saying, that's very important as well. Patients have a lot of questions. Is this, you know, is this testing on, on me? Is this uh, sort of experimental, um, you know, science or research? So for the one specific form of um, retinitis pigmentosa, which is the one caused by the mutation in the RP65 gene, this is now approved, approved uh, in Canada by Health Canada, approved in all the provinces to be administered as, as a treatment to everyone who does um, uh, apply uh, to the criteria or who is eligible. So there should, you know, it's not a trial and error to see which uh, medication is, you know, is usable or whether it's safe. This um, gene therapy, which is really a first for eye disease, but also a first in all of medicine, is, has already gone through all those trial and, you know, research steps. So now is really to identify the patients who are out there who have this mutation and who can now become um, the first patients to be treated here in Canada. The treatment is already uh, has started in the US uh, since end of 2017 and several patients actually from Montreal from Canada have already traveled to the US to receive the treatment but now this has now come to us so that they can now receive the treatment within their own city within their province instead of having to you know, to make these um, trips um, elsewhere and, you know, outside the country to receive the care. I think that, okay, I have, I have so many questions here. <laughs> um, the, no, I, I think it's interesting. I'm talking from the perspective of patients as well, right? So when I look at 
when you're saying how this is really a first in all of medicine uh, or much of medicine, you know, it's because the eye is accessible for doing uh, this type of therapy, right? And um, we can visibly, you know, examine the eye, you know, post intervention to see what's going on, right? So in many ways, um, I don't want to say people with inherited retinal diseases are lucky per se, but, you know, when you're looking on this on a continuum of different types of inherited diseases, um, a lot of the ocular diseases will be more, I'm going to say more readily addressed or earlier on in the um, implementation of gene therapy overall. But the flip side of that from a patient's perspective, and this kind of leads me to my next question, is how am I supposed to, I don't want to say trust this, right? Like there's, okay, there's a couple of years of data behind this. And what happens if I want to just, you know, I could qualify, you know, and just to be uh, transparent, I wouldn't qualify for this study. The, mm-hmm. the gene that's mutated in my family is called RPGR. Mm-hmm. But, and I know there's a lot of clinical trials ongoing for that. But if someone's uh, saying, hey, I want to see more data on this, I want to wait until there's something more concrete. I'm still very early stage in the disease. Um, have you come across that resistance from patients? And if you have, what advice would you give to them? Would you say, and then might come back to what we asked earlier about, you know, this is a progressive disease, but it's hoping maybe you can just speak to that a little bit. Yeah. And again, I think, like you said, Sean, this, this could lead to a, a multiple hour discussion because this is such an interesting topic. Um, I think, you know, from a safety and history point of view, like you said, um, this treatment that the first one to come to Canada, uh, Luxterna, or the one treating uh, the RP65 uh, gene mutation, you know, we're, he- we're hearing about it now, but this actually, you know, in the scientific or ophthalmology community, this was over 25 years coming to get to this step. You know, so yes, it's a it's a new breakthrough, but you know, if we look at the whole history of how this gene uh, therapy came to be from the initial identification of the RP65 gene back in the early 90s to being able to isolate this gene mutation, to being able to create a gene therapy product. And in this case, we're very lucky because it's a very small gene. So it was able to, you know, very nicely package it into um, the vectors that are then implanted uh, going through um, an animal model, the Briar dog that was able to benefit from the results of uh, this uh, research. Then moving on to the the human studies, you know, phase one, two, three, and then four even of this, Uh, step of the study. This was 25 years in the making. So this is new, but it's not so sudden that, you know, it's not results that came through, uh, you know, within a couple of months of research. You know, we have years of uh, studies on, you know, we have some patients that date back over 10 years now who've received the initial preliminary results. So we have data going back to show how they've tolerated how um, the treatment and how they're doing now. So, and I think it's valid questions, you know, for patients who were previously told, well, you know, you have an untreatable disease, um, there's nothing to do, um, you know, there's no need for follow-up to suddenly be told, please come and please be seen. It, it is a big change in, you know, in the um, in the culture and in the attitude. But so I think it's important that, um, you know, patients either hear this from their uh, doctors, people who know about, uh, you know, the research, the whole process, the painstaking, very meticulous scientific process that goes through before getting each of these approved and coming to market. Um, and so that they know also 
also to, you know, if they haven't seen an ophthalmologist for many years, that this is the time that things are changing and it's worthwhile to come back and get um, a genetic test done because that wasn't necessarily um, done, you know, in a standard routine, even maybe five or 10 years ago. And also this sets up the precedent that because it's you know gene targeted, I think it's advantageous in the sense that you know there's not going to be uh, non-targeted treatments that come out all the time. That you know if people uh, sign up for one treatment, they're not eligible for another one uh, a few years down the road. You know if this is a treatment that's specifically targeted towards you specific mutation. Um, to have gotten to this step, this is based on all of these past decades of research. And I think what I see is more uh, a rapid finding of um, key gene therapy solutions to different mutations, but based on this very robust um, decades of research that was used to develop the first gene mutation. So all the new ones will be permutations of this evolving technology that's taken time to establish itself. Yeah, I think that's, that's very interesting right, for them to know that if they do the genetic testing and, and they happen not to have the, the, the mutation that can be treated right now, uh, it doesn't mean that that wasn't worth it, right? Like, I mean, they, at least they will know their mutation and they might have a, a treatment in the future. Definitely. And I think this now is the time, right? Like you said, there hasn't been a very uh, robust building of this genetic database in the past. And this is why, you know, when we have this treatment now, we're hitting a bit of a wall because maybe there are people um, who have the RP65 mutation, but who were never tested before, right? So we have a little bit of a, a lag in starting the treatment because we have to now try to test everyone who was you know, previously diagnosed and who didn't have this uh, genetic mutation testing done five years ago. So imagine if we do these tests now and we get the results, maybe they don't qualify for the current um, RP65 treatment, but at least we'll know. For example, you have RPGR mutations, perhaps you have, um, you know, you have um, Stargardt mutation. And then when that gene therapy comes down the road in two or five years, they will already be ready, you know, so that we don't, again, have this lead lag um, effect down the road when we get to that point. They will already have the information in hand, and that's really a powerful tool. And so, you know, I think it's really, you're, you're completely right. It's about changing uh, the perception of what the genetic mutation test means, both for patients and for colleagues. You know, I, I, have, I still have colleagues who see a patient who, um, for the first time, they tell the patient, well, you know, I just diagnosed you with retinitis pigmentosa, uh, please come back in, in five years because there's nothing to do. Like, even very recently, I've heard of patients coming to me with stories like that, you know? So, and that's really not the way it should be anymore, right? The, the science is advancing and every year there's change. Like they shouldn't be coming back in five years. Things are changing every, every year, every month. And same thing for patients, right? Um, I've had patients uh, who in the past said, well, what's the purpose of doing genetic testing? Uh, you don't have any solutions for me. Like, it doesn't change anything in my day-to-day -day life now. But you know, if you take it into this broader perspective that it's opening horizons for future treatment, then you know, we really see the importance of, of doing these tests. And, and talking about day-to-day -day life, right? Uh, I think like, it's a question they might have is like, I mean, what exactly does success uh, feels like, right? So would you have any uh, story of a patient that uh, was treated already and, and, and how much their vision improved and, and how much their lives have changed like so, so people can have an idea what they can expect if the treatment works. 
For sure. So, you know, the, the one that's been approved, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Luxterna, that's the commercial name or variety gene in Pavrovac. Um, as I was mentioning, there have been patients uh, all over the world, mostly in the U.S., because they've started enrolling and treating since end of 2017, who've received the treatment. And um, most of these um, patients are actually children uh, because, uh, you know, the disease Leber's congenital amaurosis manifests itself uh, since um, the since childhood. And as we mentioned, the, you know, the earlier you treat before there's severe loss, the more likely you're going to gain back visual function. So, you know, there have, uh, there are stories of children who um, have received the treatment and within a couple of weeks, and this is from, you know, from reliable information from the patient and from the treating physicians, where the children mentioned that um, all of a sudden, you know, they're in um, primary school, the board looks different. You know, they're seeing, they're perceiving a lot more in their environment than they used to do. And, uh, you know, very recently there was also a story of, um, I think it was in the news where a Montreal boy who uh, went to Philadelphia to get treatment for uh, this mutation as well, the Luxterna. And he's come back, he's had a successful um, healing process. And, you know, when uh, he was asked what he sees differently, he says, well, for the first time in his life, you know, he can see the stars at night. You know, so, you know, for, for example, these are things that people who don't have visual, um, you know, the deficits take for granted, but for, for these patients, especially these kids who have a whole lifetime of vision ahead of them, this makes a world of difference in terms of what they can do at school with their friends uh, in their day-to-day family life and what it means uh, ultimately for their whole lifetime and their career, you know, because right now these treatments um, with the data we have, we don't know exactly how long the effect will be, but we can assume for now that uh, this one dose should at least cover, could you know, ultimately cover many, many decades or ultimately a whole lifetime. So getting one treatment uh, by having the gene therapy supplement the, the missing or the mutated gene really makes a, an impact uh, lifelong. And, and, uh, and, and even if the cases that do not see a, a remarkable improvement in vision, uh, uh, it, it could have prevented like the progression of the disease, right? So uh, it doesn't mean that the treatment didn't work. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's, uh, again, everybody, you know, it's it's really a, a case-by-case um, study. So everyone, you know, responds to the treatment differently. And it's very dependent on, as we're saying, the, the degree of the disease, the age of the patient, you know, what they've um, um, gone through before, even in some studies, not for RP65 per se, but, you know, for example, for gene therapy and choroideremia, which is another um, inherited uh, retinal disease affecting mostly uh, men, male patients, because it's X-linked. You have brothers enrolling in the study and both ultimately, you know, having different outcomes. So it's really an individual um, experience in terms of the surgery and then the final uh, effect. But ultimately the goal is to make the patients better, but the level to which they improve will be variable depending on very miss, you know, it's multifactor, it's based on many factors surrounding that person. But the goal is obviously to give them back function um, and to help them keep their visual function for as long as possible without any um, severe declines over time. Okay, so I have about four different directions <laughs> I want to go here. I, I'm sorry, like this is this is awesome for me. So uh, a couple of things. So when you're talking about 
patients, they can have variable outcomes. I think it's important for people who are listening that you're also talking about a, you know, an approved therapy with a very favorable risk profile. So the, you know, the risk reward uh, ratio here um, is quite favorable, right? So fairly low risk uh, intervention Mm -hmm. um, with potentially life altering reward, right? So I think that the, that's a a bet that I would place any day. Um, You know, I I have a, as you're talking about uh, some of the ophthalmologists still, you know, telling people, Hey, go home, come back in five years. It just reminds me of a story from the uh, art. Well, you're very familiar with the Argus too. I think, were you not one of the first part of the first team to implant these in Canada? Right. Sure. Yeah. Yes. So the, the Argus to the, um, the bionic eye, so to speak, or the retinal prosthesis. Um, I remember after that it was approved uh, reading something and it would have been uh, Robert Greenberg, who was the CEO of uh, second sight was talking about how they were running into trouble, actually getting patients. And it's like, people didn't, you know, they, they thought there'd just be this flood of thousands and thousands of patients that want to get this treatment that's available. And there's a lot of people that just didn't even know about it. Right. And I'm sure that there are many clinicians right now, as well as patients that don't know about, you know, a treatment for RP 65 and uh, you know, hopefully this podcast can be one vehicle by which we can help educate uh, um, you know, patients and, and clinicians, right? The, you mentioned that the RP65 was, is a small gene, and I'm assuming this is why it was one of the, based on prevalence and based on size of the gene, I'm assuming this is why it was one of the, or the first one to really be pushed through trials. Does that make sense? Yeah. So is the uh, and maybe you don't know the answer to this. I don't know, but um, because there are a number of different genes that can be affected um, and that can ultimately lead to or manifest as retinitis pigmentosa, is the size of the gene um, a barrier or the barrier to um, delivering this gene? I guess using this viral vector or this packaging um, to shove the gene in and then stick it into cells. Is, is the size uh, really important or is it is that have basically been dealt with in general? Um, I think there are very ingenious ways now of dealing with that. So definitely, um, you know, in earlier years, uh, size of the gene product that you want to package is an issue. So in this case, like we said, um, the RP65 gene is quite small. It's around 62 kilodaltons and it fits very nicely in the vector, which is, uh, you know, one of the more popular ones used for, for gene therapy. It's an um, adeno-associated uh, viral vector. Um, like we were saying, you know, with, with COVID year, I think <laughs> pushing through, um, you know, all this new data about uh, uh, vaccines, mRNA, is going to kind of help and I think take away some of the, the, the fear or the stigma around having uh, these, is, you know, these viral uh, gene vectors. Um, for some other diseases where the gene mutation or the gene product is bigger, um, you know, one example I can give is, for example, Usher syndrome. Uh, that's one of the forms of retinitis pigmentosa, whereas many people also have associated hearing loss. That's also one of the more common types of um, uh, genetic mutations for RP. Uh, the gene product is much bigger. And hence, it would not uh, be it would not be able to fit on a standard um, uh, 
adenovirus vector like the RP65 has been able to. So in the past, uh, what they've done or what actually current trials for that disease is doing is that they've used other uh, viral vectors. And in this case, they've used uh, what's called a, a lentivirus viral vector, which is able to, in which you're able to fit a much bigger um, gene product up to, I think, uh, 10 kilobase pairs, you know, and sometimes what they've also tried is if the gene product is too big, they've kind of tried to separate it into two pieces and have it delivered on two different vectors, you know. So these are some of the um, earlier solutions that were, you know, were used to, to bypass the issue of size. Um, and then obviously, you know, what's really exciting now also is the introduction and use of the, the newer uh, CRISPR-Cas9 um, technology. I'm sure everyone has recently heard about, you know, this technology being recognized uh, um, for its value as a, for, by, um, by, two of its researchers winning the Nobel Prize just last year, Dr. Dutna and Dr. Charpentier. And so the idea here is that um, basically you are, instead of just delivering uh, a whole gene product that's you know missing or malfunctioning in the original um, person's eye or body, you're delivering um, a, a gene product that's gonna go try and repair uh, the error that's at the primary set side of the mutation. So the idea is, you know, some people are calling these kind of uh, DNA scissors, where you would try to snip out uh, the faulty gene and then introduce um, the correct sequence so that then the, um, the, the initial or the native gene is now going to be able to, to produce the correct gene product, you know? So this, the fact that you're snipping out and then you're trying to introduce the correct um, gene sequence. This also takes away some of the idea of packaging a whole gene product and sending in and instead of instead of just replacing you're talking about correcting. So really we're talking about new different technologies coming to the forefront and once again as Sean was mentioning because the eye is such a special place right it's it's um, uh, it's a very enclosed space you're able to access it directly without having the gene product go through your whole body, you're able to very precisely deposit the gene product at the level of the retina where you want it to act. So CRISPR-Cas9 is also one of these technologies that has been taken up in ophthalmology and in retinal um, research. And there's actually a current study using that technology, um, studying its effect in treating a different form of uh, Leber's congenital amaurosis, which is um, Leber's congenital amaurosis 10, which is caused by a different mutation, the CEP290 uh, mutation. And this is also a study that's you know, generating a lot of excitement because um, you know, it's a first once again in um, ophthalmology, but also in the whole world of, uh, of uh, medicine where you're once again, directly uh, administering the CRISPR-Cas9 technology to modify and to correct the mutated gene disease. So I think that just a couple of things there, you mentioned, uh, uh, I think it's Jennifer Dudna, right? Who yes. uh, was, uh, there's actually, if I'm not mistaken, there's a book by Walter Isaacson who, who authored, um, you know, Ben Franklin's biography and Steve Jobs and a number of other people. I think he just put a book out um, talking about her. I could be wrong, but yeah, uh, I think so. I thought, yeah, I thought I read that somewhere, and I think it's on my my reading list somewhere. But uh, um, I didn't I didn't get to it yet. Uh, so I just wanted to also talk to you about. There's so much excitement that's been happening in this field recently. Um, what if you had a crystal ball I guess if you crystal ball you would know the answer but if a hypothetical crystal ball and, and we're trying to you know peer two three five ten years into the future knowing 
what has happened uh, in terms of developments in recent years for gene therapy for inherited retinal diseases. Where do you envision that field, um, you know, in, let's say five years from now, give or take, or where would you like to see the field? Obviously, I'd like to see the field, you know, light years ahead, but where mm-hmm. would you envision that the field could be? And to put it in context, like, do you think that there could be uh, approved gene therapies for, for RP or other forms of uh, inherited retinal disease, you know, that span multiple different um, underlying mutations? What, what do you think? I'd like to see the field evolve in a way that makes that treatment uh, very accessible. You know, because right now it's in the earlier stages, um, you know, we're talking about the, the, the concepts of what we're trying to do and the principles hopefully <laughs> make sense, you know, when we break it down into these pieces. But, you know, to make the whole operation work, there's a lot of logistics that goes into it. You know, we're talking about um, choosing specific hospital centers that are able to, first of all, identify these patients uh, correctly with the correct uh, genetic tests, because genetic test interpretation is also something that's quite complex. Um, having the the right, um, you know, first of all, the surgical team, of course, that's what people think of. But, you know, behind the scenes, there's a whole lot of logistics about how the uh, gene therapy is um, delivered, how it's pre-processed, whether there's, you know, access to easy um, uh, specialized pharmacies that can store, that can prepare the, the gene product to be used in the right time frame. It's kind of like, you know, like the, the COVID vaccines right now, right? Like two doses has to be at my, minus 80, you have to keep it at this temperature. So, so the, 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 the product is quite um, fragile and you need a whole tight schedule of logistics and people and equipment to make it work. Like for example, once the, for now for, for Luxterna, once the product is prepared, you have to use it within a four hour span time, time span, right? Otherwise it's no longer active and, you know, it's, um, uh, it's, it's very tightly controlled. And then you have to work with the anesthesia team, have the patient ready. Like, is, are you at the right surgical step to be able to administer it? You know, is the dosage right? Do you have the right needles, et cetera, et cetera. So what I hope to see is that, you know, the, the science advances so much that this now becomes, you know, like a, a routine treatment. You know, someone comes to your clinic, is diagnosed with uh, RP. Um, you can do a, a quick genetic test and say, this is your mutation and we can schedule for uh, treatment within this short time span and not only limited to only, you know, for example, now University of Montreal is one of two centers in Canada to administer it, the other being the University of Toronto, but that it would become something that um, ophthalmologists um, across the, the country have access to and can easily administer without having to think about the logistical difficulties of, you know, obtaining maintaining and giving the treatment. And I think the other direction, like we said, is, you know, RP is such a heterogeneous, you know, it's a term that englobes so many diseases, you know, and that's something that I think patients sometimes have a hard time grasping, right? They see RP, like in the news, there's a treatment for RP, and they think that it's, it's, it's right for them, but, you know, it's not, but we hope that, you know, with time, all the different mutations will be more easily identifiable and that we will have a gene therapy for each and every single one of those mutations, be they a very common mutation, be they a very rare one, be they a very large gene product or a very small one, that they all become at the same level easily uh, reachable for all the patients. Yeah, that's all very exciting. Uh, Sincha, thank you very much for sharing all that. Uh, if, if there's one thing that this episode will do, I think, is to... Uh, 
like encourage like patients that uh, have retinary pigmentosa to take uh, action about their diseases after so many years that they've been told that there's nothing that could be done. So if you if you could put yourself like in the shoes of a patient, right, that uh, it's now hearing about all that, what are the steps that they're going to have to do until they actually get tested? Right. So many of these patients, um, you know, some have, um, once they're diagnosed, have, um, are, you know, receive information, receive um, news from one of the vision rehabilitation centers they're affiliated with, be it, you know, in the province of Quebec, you have uh, Nazareth, you have the Mackay uh, Lethbridge Center, um, you also have um, other centers like Le Bouclier uh, in the different regions that people live in. So I would say it would be, you know, if there's a regular contact with one of these centers, you know, reach out to, to those centers first. We don't have to reinvent the wheel to try to get back into the system. If there's already uh, a person that's your link or contact, go to that person. Um, the other thing I encourage people to do as well is if they're not familiar with the Fighting Blindness Canada um, webpage is to also get information from that webpage. Um, I'm part also of the committee of uh, for uh, Fighting Blindness Canada where we're trying to also create a Canada-wide registry so that all people who have had previously been diagnosed with inherited retinal diseases, be it with um, a genetic testing or not, is within the registry so that we can easily have access to communicate with them and contact them should there be a new treatment, a new study that's coming out so that everyone knows you know, where they're at, both from the patient side of things of what's coming down the pipeline and from the physician side of things about how to reach the patients. And also, so you know, I, I do see a lot of um, my own patients in my practice, but I'm also happy to get, um, you know, consultations from my colleagues who have some of these patients already in their practice and they'd like to have them seen for um, an accelerated genetic testing uh, process. And right now we're working with the, um, for a limited time, we're working with uh, Novartis who are the uh, distributors of um, the medication Luxterna in accelerating the turnaround time for getting genetic testing done and having the results back. So I would say, you know, it's if you hear this podcast or if you hear about these, um, you know, exciting uh, news, it's the time to sort of, you know, you can reach out to us and, you know, we're more than happy to um, to kind of go through the, the process of explaining what the steps are and of doing the tests to see, you know, what your mutation is, if it hasn't been tested yet, and whether you're a candidate for this um, approved treatment. So Cynthia, on that note, then, so if if I'm a patient listening to this, which I am, um, but you know, do I go to my ophthalmologist and say, Hey, I heard this podcast uh, about this treatment and maybe I could qualify. Mm -hmm. Do I do that and have the, the ophthalmologist reach out to, you know, the department, the university of Montreal, or what would, you know, what would be the process to get that initial contact for a patient? Yeah, so that that's perfectly. Um, I mean, if you that for sure. I mean, we know each other, so that would be a, a easy, yeah. you know, kind of referral. But uh, that sounds like a perfectly good uh, pathway. Um, we're also actually looking to see. Um, you know, right now I'm ordering a lot of the genetic testing. Uh, we're also trying to see if different uh, retina specialists and other ophthalmologists can actually also try to order the test 
first, uh, because even with the accelerated process, it's a couple of weeks of turnover so that, you know, we're trying to see if there are ways we can get the testing started and, you know, have the ball rolling so that, you know, once we hit the ground and we get to the next step of doing more um, uh, sophisticated imaging tests that the genetic testing results are already ready, available and back for us to kind of review together. So, so yeah, so that could be discussed you know, either as a referral to the University of Montreal, or if their treating retinal physician is able to order the genetic testing and get things started, that would be another pathway as well. Uh, we also work very closely with the uh, the IONLB, as I had mentioned, as well as the Makai Center. So patients who are affiliated with those centers can also reach out and they have ways of reaching into our system for um, to set up uh, appointments and consultations. So just, sorry, I'm going to keep diving on this just for, for a minute. I probably have uh, three or four family members that I can definitely refer because I you know I've, I underwent uh, genetic testing at the National Eye Institute back in 2009. Uh, so I know the mutation, but um, in talking to Dr. Flavio Resende in, in our last episode, he emphasized how important it was for patients, even within the same family, they think they know the mutation to still, they still have to get tested. Mm -hmm. So I can probably serve up a few people uh, very quickly, but when someone gets genetic testing, just for um, the audience to understand, is it just a blood test or what, you know, what does it involve for the patient? Like they, a genetic testing can sound kind of scary if you don't know what to expect. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the classic and probably still the gold standard is just a blood test. Yeah, it, it sounds scary, but it's no different than seeing having your blood drawn to check, uh, you know, to check whether your blood sugars are good or, you know, just like a routine checkup where you get a blood test. So it's the same thing. And, and we don't take too many. So, <laughs> so it's not, uh, you know, you're not uh, getting like 10 tubes of, of blood tests done. Um, alternatively, there are other tests. There are some other tests that are commercially available now where it's simply getting some genetic material from your saliva, you know? So, so actually the, the tests, um, some of the ones we're sending out now, uh, we, we just need a, a saliva uh, sample um, to then be sent uh, for testing. Um, the saliva samples are more ideal for adults because we, we do need a good volume. And sometimes for kids, it's, it's actually hard for them to, um, you know, to spit in the tube and to get the, uh, the volume that we need. Uh, but both are equally effective you know, in determining what the genetic um, mutation is. The advantage of the blood sample is that most likely you, if you send it off for testing, you can keep a portion of it for, for example, um, in some cases, genetic testing uh, comes back and it's, you know, non-conclusive or it's negative. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's no mutation. It just means that perhaps there's a gene at work that we're not familiar or that has not been identified yet. So being able to keep some of that blood sample allows you to retest it at a later time, should there be more information about um, genetic testing. And you know, right now, a lot of the tests are what we call panel testing, where you have a panel of tests, um, you know, you're testing for 20 genes or 50 genes, you know, uh, but the science of the genetic testing is also, also giving us more um, opportunities and it's moving towards what we call whole, uh, whole genome testing, where instead of just testing certain genes, um, the, the technology allows us to test for, for many, not just the genes that we know, but for, you know, to look more broadly as well. So, so that's an advantage where you can do one sample that, but that could be used over time for, for a long time or for many years. I think that's, uh, that, it's interesting. I think the database you're building of patients is genius because then, you know, patients 
um, they're kind of, they're in the system. They now their mutation is known. And basically it's like, Hey, if there's something that could potentially help me contact me, right. Rather than trying to follow up and interpret, Hey, could this help me? Um, and sure. whatnot. Right. So that's great. Yeah. Um, I think we've been running a lot, Bruno, do you have any other questions you want to throw at Cynthia for, for this round one? Uh, that, that, that's for me today, but we, we would definitely want to have you again. And you know, there's so many questions that I would like to ask, but uh, I think today we had enough of your time. Yeah, so it was a it was a great pleasure talking, and it was you know it just felt like a, a discussion amongst friends. So that went by really quickly, and um, I really appreciate the opportunity to to talk to both of you and share some of my uh, my experiences. Great, and then hopefully once uh, once you know COVID uh, has become a thing of the past now we can actually sit down among as as friends and have a coffee and and uh talk more about retina <laughs> so <laughs> until that time uh cynthia thanks so much for joining us uh it's truly been a pleasure and um we're definitely going to make sure as people listen to this i think that we'll we're going to be flooding the phone lines at the, at the university um but no thanks seriously for for sharing your your experience and knowledge it's it's truly a pleasure <laughs> a pleasure sorry same here. Take care, guys. All right. Guys. Take care. Bye now. Thank you, Cynthia.